One way to get you guys to sit down quicker is to say, for every time I have to say, find your seats, I'm going to add 10 minutes to the sermon. How about that? So you guys are going to be so quiet next week. No, I'm so glad that you're here. I'm glad that you guys are connecting with each other and it's just awesome. So I'm just kidding about that. I still might go 10 minutes extra though. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for, Lord, your love for us. Thank you, God, as we dive into the greatest story ever known. That, Lord, we would see you. That we would see you in a new way, with new eyes, with a just a new freshness, oh God, that maybe we've heard some of these stories, maybe we've heard these things before, but God, that you would open the eyes and the ears of our hearts and our understanding to see you in a new way. So God, we lift you up and we honor you today in Jesus' name, amen. Are you glad to be amongst the people with uh, the, the, new, the new series called The Story? Are you glad? I'm, I'm excited about this. I've been looking forward to this. Um, again, uh, this is our first week where we're beginning the journey called The Story. I encourage you to come each week, invite friends, invite your family, track along with us. There's resources that you can get. There's, uh, the, it, if, you, if you've not been with us, it's the Bible written kind of like a novel. Um, it's the, some, some major themes throughout scripture. And so you can get resources if you like in the back. Uh, there's still more if you want to order those. Um, but I'm very, very excited about this. Um, growing up, I always liked to read a good story. Anybody that they like to read a good story or you like somebody to tell you a good story? Um, I was, a, as a kid, I, I liked to read, but I, I didn't quite like reading, you know, things that were boring. I liked a good story. I liked something to captivate me. I liked adventure. I liked, you know, something that would, you know, that there's a hero, that there's, you know, there, there's peril, there's, you know, there's all the good components of a story. That was the stuff that captured me. And most kids will, you know, when, they, when you tell them a story, it's so fun. When my kids were little, when Taylor and Tori were little, I get to do, do it with Judah a little bit now. He's not so much into it now, but, uh, but we're getting there when I we tell, tell him stories. He's going to like dad's stories before it's over with. So, um. <laughs> but it was fun to watch, the, watch them as they are anticipating what could be coming next. And, and we used to do this thing with, with their cousins. I, I, it was a, kind of a traveling story where you make up stuff as you go along and then you give them a scenario and then they pick about what, what, what's going to happen. And you, I mean, you were going all over the place. I mean, you went from like, you know, 18th century to, you know, to now superheroes in the future. I mean, it could go anywhere. And, and, and you could just see the anticipation on their face going, I can't wait to see what's going to happen next. That's how I want us to approach the word of God is just to anticipate what God wants to say. And so what's the story? The story, it's the word of God written like a novel. It takes a look at some of the major themes, as I said, of the people of the Bible and reveals that we have always been a part of God's story. The Bible is God's story. The word of God is his story. It's a story of love, it's a story of rescue, it's a story of redemption. It's got all the great components to any good story. 
But it's our story too, and it's a story of the great lengths that God will go to redeem and rescue humanity. And so my heart and my prayer for this as we've gone along and as I've been praying is that we will see the word of God in a new and fresh way as I prayed earlier, that you will see your part in God's story. That you're not just some character that, you know, that, that just is a walk by. You know the, the extras in movies? You know, they'll, 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 they'll just do this mass call, people like in the community and you can be an extra. And you know, you might see the back of somebody's head and they're like, there's my head. I was in that movie. You're more than an extra. You're a very important part of God's story. And that we will understand God's purpose and plan for our lives. My heart also is that we will see Jesus in a new way and love him more than ever. And that giving our lives to him and completely in surrender is the greatest decision that we'll ever make. And I encourage you that, that, that we will, again, open our ears in a new way because all throughout the Bible, you will see the gospel unfold. You will see the gospel even in the Old Testament. A lot of people go, well, you know, now that we have this new covenant, the Old Testament, New Testament, do we really even need the Old Testament? Absolutely. And there's purpose in the Old Testament. You will see the gospel come alive in the Old Testament. You will see that God's plan, even when major themes and major people of the Bible that we read about, you will see the gospel unfold in the Old Testament. There are clues, there are signs that point us to the reality of Jesus. Through his word, his story, God shows us his plan of redeeming humanity through Christ Jesus. And so let's open up our hearts to see that. So today is in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. And I want to take a look at a few different things as we track along here today. As we begin the story, and if you've ever read, you know, we, we, a lot of us are very familiar with the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we're going to look at three things today. First one is the greatness of God. The greatness of God, that's going to be one of the things that we're going to highlight, the greatness of God. Secondly, is we're going to look at the frailty and the brokenness of humanity. The greatness of God, the frailty and the brokenness of humanity. And then thirdly is this, God's response to that brokenness. So those are three things we're going to highlight today. Every story has a beginning. And God's story begins with him. It all started with him. He is the author of the story, and it begins with him. One of the names of God, he is the beginning, and also he will be the end. He is the alpha, and he is the omega. It starts with him. He has no beginning of himself. He just is the beginning. He's always been. And theologically, and that's so hard to get our minds around, isn't it? That he's always been. And he is sufficient in himself. He needs nothing. And so he contains with himself all that he could possibly ever need. But it starts with him. And here's the thing. It doesn't start with us. We're a part of the story, but we're not the point of the story. He's the point of the story. 
And so as we see the story unfold, in the beginning, God, and you could almost stop right there and preach an entire sermon on just who God is. In the beginning, God, and he creates everything that we see. And he, he did light and darkness as we see these days unfold. He did sky and water and land, sun, moon, stars, birds, and sea creatures. And that's just the stuff that we can see with our own eyes and, 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 and with the human eye. And now, you know, as, as, especially as, as science gets more advanced and the telescopes get more advanced, they're, they're seeing all kinds of galaxies out there. And, and, and you just see the bigness and the grandness of God on a scale that we can't even hardly fathom. And God was behind it all. The bigness of God. Now this morning, I'm, I'm not going to talk about the debate of, you know, six literal days of creation, old earth, young earth, that, that's, those are maybe a legitimate arguments and that's fine, but I'm not going to get lost in that today. The point is this, in the beginning, God, let's begin there. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. By him and for him, all things were created. So we see the bigness of galaxies with God, and also we see the smallness of the DNA strain in the human body and in living things. All around us, we see evidence of the creator. We see the designer's handiwork all around us. That it wasn't just some sort of chaotic happening that we started with nothing and then it was chaos and then all of a sudden there was perfect order to everything. And for folks that stand on that, I'm just saying, let's at least have the integrity to say it takes some faith to believe that. So we can just call it what it is. We all have a level of faith. But all around us we see order of the human body, everything working intricately, the, the galaxies, the way uh, you know, the, 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 the planets revolve around the sun and, and, and everything is just placed in order. And that didn't happen where there was just chaos and all of a sudden perfect order. Order doesn't come out of chaos. Order comes from the creator. And so God is huge and he's intricate and there is no artist like God. So we see him create, but then we see his heart revealed at the very beginning of it all. And creation concludes with this, with God's core passion. Creation concludes with God's core passion, human beings. And so here's the passage from Genesis 1, 26 through 27. God's core passion is this, then God said, let us. You could even stop there and say, you know, if, who's the us? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they were all there at creation. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over the, all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And so God is creating all of this awesome sky, water, light, day, night, beasts, fish, 
mountains, galaxies, and he comes, and all of that is awesome, and we can stand in awe of just that. And then God reveals his heart and says, I want to make people. So we became the core passion of God's heart for creation. And we get a little, we get a little understanding too, because when sin comes in the world, I'm going to talk about that in a minute, but there's a, there's a passage in Genesis 3, it says, in the cool of the day, God came into the garden to look for Adam and Eve. And so it indicates that he would come and spend time with them. And so relationship was on the heart of God from the very beginning. Relationship with people. He did not create people as some sort of sadistic ant farm. And I shared a little bit about that a couple weeks ago. It was for relationship. God's supreme passion was and is to be with us. And we see that in the creation of people has always been about relationship with God. But here's the thing. In creating us, he didn't want to create us to make us, to force us to love him. What kind of a marriage would that be with my wife if I said, you know, I'm going to make you love me? And I guess there's some cultures that they kind of do that a little, and it's kind of heavy-handed and weird and sick. But there's not really a lot of... of, of, of wonder in a relationship if you're if one party is making that I'm going to try to make you love because you can't affect their heart they have to decide they have to choose whether they're going to love you or not and you can force them to do certain things but you could never force someone to love you and so God in his sovereignty did not force man to love him back and so in order in creation God creates all of this, he creates man. And because of order, he puts parameters. And I mean, we are, we are, we, we live in a, in, in a world, uh, in, in human life and in natural law where God has set up parameters as a part of his order. You can't jump from somewhere and expect that, the, that gravity is going to somehow excuse you. You're going to find out real quick that that doesn't work. And so he puts parameters because he loves people. That's why we, when we have this thing of order, when you have what, you know, what we talk about later on is, is discipline is a good thing. Is saying, I, I, I'm creating parameters because there's order and there's structure to this thing and it works right within the context of order. That's why when God created, he reveals order. Everything works in order. And so he, because he didn't want to force man, he gives parameters in the garden. Don't touch of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, you will die. It's very plain. They didn't have to study theologically or doctrinally of what does he mean by don't touch? Let's study the Hebrew of touch. Did it literally mean don't touch or does he mean, you know, that we can maybe breathe on it? Um, can we bump into it accidentally? God's very plain. He says, he, and, 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 you know, a lot of people go, well, why did he put that tree? In? You know, we could debate that all day. But there, part of it is he did not want for, to force man to love him. And so there was this, 
this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he says, don't touch it. Don't touch it or you'll die. And then the enemy comes along. And in Genesis 3, we have the event that affects us all. The enemy comes and feeds them the lie, and they believe it. And I believe that this is the core sin. Here's what the enemy tells them. You won't surely die. I know what God said, but let me, let me clear this up for you. And he begins to twist the plain word of God. You won't surely die. God says, if you touch it, you will die. And what does the enemy say? You won't surely die. God knows that if you eat of that tree, you will be like him, knowing good from evil. So what's the harm in that? You'll be like God. Isn't that a, wouldn't that be something that you would want to adhere to, Adam and Eve? You, you can be like him and he didn't really mean that you would die, die. You know, it's just, it's just kind of a figure of speech. And actually, there would be something great as if you touch it, you'd actually become more like him. And wouldn't you like to be more like God? Knowing good from evil? And so in God's sovereignty, he didn't create human beings to be forced to serve, love, and obey him. But they were created with the power to choose. Free will. That's one of the gifts that God gives us. And so what does man do with that gift? They chose to rebel against God. And here's what they did. And I pray that we open our ears here because we are not so far removed from Adam and Eve. They begin to take control of their own lives. And that's what they did in that moment. They believed a lie instead of God. The foundation of every sin can be found in this story. Listen to what Oswald Chambers, this is yesterday's reading about the nature of sin. He says, the nature of sin is not immorality and wrongdoing, but the nature of self-realization, which leads us to say, I am my own God. This nature may exhibit itself in proper morality. Hear this. It can, it can exhibit itself in proper morality or improper immorality, but it always has a common basis my claim to my right to myself. When our Lord faced either people with all the forces of evil in them or people who were clean, living, moral, and upright, he paid no attention to the moral degradation of one nor any attention to the moral attainment of the other. He looked at something we do not see, namely the nature of man. Isn't that good? I am my own God. And so Adam and Eve said, you know, we know better than God. God didn't really mean, and they believed a lie, and the lie crept in, and basically is saying, I know better than God how to run my life. And so sin says, I will decide what is right and wrong. I will be in control of my own life. I'll call the shots. I am the Lord and master of my own life, and God doesn't know what's best for me. I know better. God is not my standard for truth. And all of this is the core of sin, and it's a lie, and it leads to spiritual death. And that's why God said, if you touch it, if you, and it was more than just, again, not to get so wrapped up in that actual tree, 
But he says, if you take control of your own life, if you become God, if you become the Lord and Master, if you decide what's right and wrong, if you are making truth standards above me, you have become your own God and you will die. And that's straight from the heart of God. From his mouth, he says this. If you become your own God, you will die. And it's the same word to us. I'm in control. I'm the Lord and the master of my own life. And God says, you know what? That will lead you to spiritual death. And that's why we need the word of God. That's why I'm so drawn to the story. It's the actual word of God. That's why we need the word of God so desperately. It holds his truth, his standard, and his way of living life. And that's why Jesus, if you fast forward in John 10, he says, I come that you might have life. He said, the enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy you. I've come that you might have life. And so the same thing that was in the garden is played out every day in our lives. Will we take control or will we let God be in control? And so as the story progresses, Adam and Eve, they chose to rebel. And there were consequences that we see in the story. Sin became a part of their spiritual DNA. It, was, it just it took root in them. And, it be, and, and because of that, it becomes a part of our DNA. We're all born into sin. We call that the sin nature. You know, it doesn't, you know, we, we, children are wonderful and they're gifts from God, but it doesn't take too long to see that there's a sin nature, especially when they want something now. Right? We can see it play, but it's in all of us. And David says this in Psalm 51 after he had blown it horribly. And he says, surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And that is our, all of our story right there in Psalm 51. We are born into sin and it's a part of our DNA. And so and then we look, we've looked at the bigness of God. We've looked at the frailty and brokenness of man. And now I want to look at God's response. God's response. But first, I want to take a look at this. I want to see, I want to take a look at a few encounters from Scripture on the bigness of God coming into the contact with, with the brokenness of people and see the contrast. And that's why we have these, uh, you know, uh, these, these, these moments where you see people come into contact with God or the presence of God, or at times, you know, in the Old Testament when an angel would appear, what was, what was the response? The people wouldn't look at the angel and go, oh, cool, there's an angel. They would fall down as dead because they were undone, or if they had an encounter with God or his presence, there was something that would just break inside them. And so you see this contrast, and I think it's important to look at this contrast as we look at the bigness of God and the brokenness of man. Isaiah 6, 1 through 5 is the first one. So God, Isaiah encounters God, and it says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so 
Isaiah is having this opportunity as God is calling him as a prophet to the nations. And he is having a moment where he is seeing the glory of God here. Verse 4, at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. And what is his response? Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Do you see his response when he comes in contact with the bigness and the awesomeness of God? God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is huge. And so Isaiah, when he sees God and he has this moment with God and he's saying, woe to me, I am ruined. He doesn't say, cool, God, look, look at you, you're real neat. He's saying, woe to me, I'm ruined. I realize how sinful I am and how sinful everyone is compared to you. You are absolutely enormous. You are big, we are small, you are good, and we are not. And so this gives us a glimpse of God's greatness. And we should learn from this a healthy reverence and fear of the Lord. And it should bring us into a place of humility. And that's why we need to look at the bigness of God and not treat him flippantly. And in humility say, I don't have it all figured out. But here's a man that was chosen by God. And he's just undone in God's presence and saying, God, I don't have it all figured out. I, I'm not the man. You are. You are awesome. You are the potter and we are the clay, as Jeremiah talks about. He's beyond our comprehension. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Here's the next passage from Job. You know, Job's story reveals so much of God's bigness and our smallness. You know, that, that story and that, theologically has wrecked people because they don't know what to do with it. Because ultimately, you have to take a step back and say, okay, God's understanding and his ways are beyond anything that I can ever figure out. Because all of this catastrophe comes upon him. You know, the devil comes to God and debates God and says, consider, you know, and God says, Can, have you considered my, my servant Job? He's a righteous man. And the devil goes, yeah, because, you know, you protect him and you've blessed him and he's got all this stuff. If you remove some of that, he's going he's gonna to turn on you. And then God, in his sovereignty, says, all right, go ahead, have your way with him. Don't kill him. And so in a day, Job loses everything. And then on top of it, you know, then he doesn't curse God. And then on top of it, he goes through all kinds of physical torment, boils all over his body, painful. Because God says, you can touch him, but don't kill him. And you know what? When he's, when he's enduring that, there's a lot in that story that, that, that comes alive. He's got some questions for God, doesn't he? I mean, he, he is groaning and saying, oh, you know, it'd been better if I'd never been born. I mean, I, I, you know, if I was stillborn, that would have been more victorious than what's happening now. Then on top of it, you have his friends. His friends are, are, are and please don't be Job's friends. 
They're the ones that say, we've got God figured out. They, they almost were stepping into the garden and saying, we, we, you know, in, in that moment where they are taking control and taking God's place. And they're saying, we've got God figured out. Surely you've got sin in your life. You've got this problem. You've got this problem. And you would be better if you did this. And they had all the formulas. And they're, they're just keep on over and over and over. When they first got there and they saw him, it says they sat with him in silence. They should have stayed that way. And then Job could have been about five chapters long. But they're just railing on him, and you got this, and here's this formula. Well, if you do X, Y, and Z, you'll, you know, but oh, no, no, God can't do this. And they're speaking as if they know, and they're in the chambers of God saying, we know, we, we got God all figured out. And they were so wrong. And so Job, through this, he struggles, and he asks God some hard questions. Then God speaks in, in Job 38, and here, here it is. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said this, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Folks, grab a hold of that. When we presume on that we know everything there is to know about God, we, we need to be very careful. Who is this that obscures my plans and words without knowledge? And then he says to Job, brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? And who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? And this is not where he stopped. God goes on about all kinds of parts of creation and he, and he spends a lot of time grilling Job about his ways. And then we see Job's response to God from Job 42. And this is the next one. Then Job replied to the Lord. Here's the right response to God. I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. And then here's what he says. My ears had heard about you, but now my eyes have seen you. And then what does he say? Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. That's the right response to God. I had heard of you. I've heard the stories about you, but now I have seen you and it leaves me like Isaiah, it leaves me undone. I've got nothing else to say, God. You speak. And so why do I spend time? Because we need to get in our human hearts and the frailty and the brokenness of us and our DNA as sinners, the bigness of God and start with him always. Be careful what things you take in to believe about God. Here's the third passage, and I'll tie this to my conclusion. David from Psalm 8. And I love this because you're going to see the bigness of God and the beauty of God. Psalm 8. 
Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. And so David is taking this step back and he's writing and he's seeing the bigness of God. And he says, through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, and so he's like looking at creation, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. And then here is that important thing. What is mankind that you're mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all the flocks and the herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He is in awe and wonder at the bigness of God. And then he's like, I cannot believe that you're mindful of us. I cannot even wrap my head around this that you are personal and intimate. That's why David in the Old Testament found something in God and he said he's relational, he's personal. And in Psalm 8, he's declaring, he's like the bigness of God and then I, I am just blown away, God, that you're mindful of us, that you care about us that way. How majestic is your name. So David sees the bigness of God, yet he also sees the relationship and intimacy that God has always wanted. You're creator and you're mindful of us. And so in conclusion, I want to look at the gospel in the beginning. The gospel in the very beginning. Because even at the beginning of it all, we see God's heart for humanity and his desire to redeem us. And so we've seen the bigness of God, the brokenness of humanity, you know what? God doesn't just say to Adam and Eve, okay, they have become their own God. Let's just wipe them out. Let's forget about this thing called humanity. Let's just, I'll just create animals. They can just, you know, run away. And I'll, I'll just kind of like go to my own personal zoo every day. Forget humanity. But we don't see that. We see his desire to redeem us. And if we open our eyes we see the picture of the gospel of Jesus in the garden. We see God's response to man's sin. And if we don't look closely, we might miss it. Because here's man's attempt. Okay, so they do their own thing. They become their own God. Genesis 3, 6 through 7. Let's look at this. This is man's attempt at redeeming himself. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and he, she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And so they realized the shame. Before that, there, there, was, no, there was no need to have any shame because they were with God. And so they, they've, they've, they've sinned. Now they've realized their own shamefulness and they realize that we are naked and they covered themselves with fig leaves. They sewed fig leaves together. They rebelled and realized their shame. When we sin and we rebel against God, there is shame and there's a realization of our darkness. So there should be a hopefully, that's a good thing. And when we realize that we're dark. But here's their response. It was to sew fig leaves together and try to cover themselves. This was their attempt to cover their shame. But there's a huge problem with this. The coverings were temporary. That was going to be a lot of leaves that they were going to go through day in and day out. In case you haven't looked at leaves when you pluck them off the tree, it won't last very long. 
So it was temporary, and it's the same for us. We try to make up for our own sins and our own struggles and our own brokenness and our own shame by using our own types of temporary fig leaves, self-reliance, escapism, addictions, willpower, relationships, humanism, moralism. We'll just be nicer. Knowledge, if we can just gain more knowledge. But it's when we realize that we're saying, I'm undone and I'm dark and I, I, I'm sinful and I can't cover myself. Because these will never accomplish what we need them to accomplish. So what are your fig leaves? What are your temporary coverings? What keeps you from humbling yourself before Christ and saying, I desperately need you in my life? And here's that little gospel truth that if you were just reading, maybe you blew through it, but here's God's response, Genesis 3.21. So God's response, they've done this temporary fig leaves, and he, remember he comes in the garden, he's looking for them. He already knows where they're at, but he says, where are you, and who told you? And he goes on to give them consequences for their sin, but then he says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. If you don't, if you're not looking for it, you can miss it. There's the gospel right there. This simple passage, this simple phrase contains a picture of the gospel of Jesus and reveals God and how God brings us into his story. Because here's what happens. God gave them coverings of skin. He made garments of skin. And so what did we see? To get a garment of skin, something had to die, right? So one of the animals that had been created, two of the animals, who knows, but he, we see God making the first sacrifice. Something had to die in order to, for God to give them a more permanent covering. Do you see where this is going? Am I the only one excited about this? They're trying to temporarily cover themselves and cover their shame, and God says, this will never work. You need something more permanent. And so he sacrifices something to cover them more permanently. Notice that Adam and Eve didn't think. They, they were looking at the leaves. They didn't think of the animal and go, you know, that coat right there, hmm, that would make a good coat. Because they said, you know, we're, we're, God gave us these. These are, these, are, these are like gifts from God, and they're precious, and they're living things, and we can't touch them. And God says, no, now to give you more permanent covering, something has to die. Where do we find this? In Hebrews 9, it says this, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. So our sins demand something has to die. It demands bloodshed. That is why the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was put in place. But ultimately, it was an incomplete system. So God's response to Adam and Eve's rebellion, sin, and shame was to kill an animal and give them a covering. And this points us to Jesus and the cross. Because God's response to our sin and our shame and our rebellion was this. He said, you coming up with your own fig leaves, you coming up with your own morality, you coming up with your own willpower and saying that I can do this, I'm my own God and I'll get myself there and... God said, it'll never work. And so he offers his son on the cross to cover our sin and our shame. 
But we have to receive his sacrifice. We have to surrender our lives to him and stop living our own way. And stop trying to cover our own sins by our own fig leaves of self-reliance. Because look at what Isaiah, and here we have another glimpse, Isaiah 64. He says, you come to help, come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continue to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. There's your goodness right up there and my goodness. That's as good as we get. In humanism and morality, in the top of, the, of man's goodness is a filthy rag. It's like a piece of toilet paper. And then what, what does it say? This point says, it says, we all shrivel up like a leaf. Isn't that cool? They covered themselves with what? Leaves. And we all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. Our leaves, our best attempt at righteousness will shrivel up, but the sacrifice of Jesus and living for him will last forever. Here's what Paul says in Romans 13. Paul tells us that we are to put away the deeds of the flesh. And isn't this interesting, his wordage here? He says, put away the deeds of the flesh and the darkness and put on the armor of light by clothing ourselves with the Lord Jesus. So in the garden, after sin, in Genesis 3, we see the gospel and we see Jesus. Man's attempt to try to cover themselves, to be good enough, be moral enough, be nice enough. And God says that it'll never work. And he took and something had to die to cover them. And then Paul later on in the New Testament says that we put away the deeds of the flesh and we put away darkness and we put on the armor of light by how? Clothing ourselves with the Lord Jesus and putting the Lord Jesus on almost like a, a coat clothing ourselves with him. He uses the words because I think he's looking at Genesis 3. The permanent covering of our sins. And what Adam lost, what Adam and Eve lost in a garden, Jesus starts to regain in a garden. Isn't that interesting? As a part of this gospel message, at the very beginning, they blow it in the garden. God begins to, Jesus begins to redeem us in the garden. Remember, he's in the garden before his crucifixion. And he's groaning to the Father and he's saying, if this cup, if this cup can pass from me, this crucifixion, what I'm about to do, if it can be passed from me, let it be. Nevertheless, what does he say? Not my will, but yours be done. And he's regaining, he's winning us back and he's redeeming humanity. Where Adam and Eve said, not your will, my will be done. Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. And so what was lost in a garden began to be regained in a garden. And then Jesus, after that night, goes willingly to the cross for you and for me. And from the very beginning, our awesome creator, God had a plan for redeeming us from our own rebellion of him. Do you see your part in God's story even from Genesis 1? 
Do you see yourself there when he was thinking of you, when God covered them and he said that even that covering of skin, something had to die, but it was still going to be incomplete until the completeness of the sacrifice of Jesus would come. God creates, man rebels, God wins us back through Christ by sending him to die. That's the good news and we find it at the very beginning. And so he gave us Jesus and he says, put on the Lord Jesus. What does that mean? What do we do with this gift? What do we do with our own self-reliance? What do we do when we see the greatness of God and we say, I'm undone and I'm unclean and I'm, when I see your bigness and we're like Job and we say, you know what? I have nothing left to say and I can debate with you all day long, but you are so awesome and you're so great and yet you're so personal. And what do we do when we clothe ourselves? It's surrendering our lives. It's, it's removing self-reliance. It's saying, I'm not going to be God of my own life anymore. And I'm going to step off the throne of my own life. And I'm going to say, Jesus, you are Lord and Savior. I want to live your way. I want to walk with you every day in relationship. And I want to receive your sacrifice for me and understand that I am broken. I'm a sinner. And the only way I can be covered and the only way I can be free is your sacrifice. So what will you do? with Jesus today. Let's pray. Lord, we declare your awesomeness today. We, as we look at your goodness through creation, the, the wonder, Lord, we are, it is, it is awe-inspiring. Lord, when we hear more and more of what science is showing us out there and the galaxies and the things that are moving in order and nothing is out of, out of whack and it just all flows in, the, in our bodies. We look at the human eye and, and we see all these components and all these things this intricately woven together that gives us sight. The DNA strands of our body we see your artistry everywhere, but yet we say like David, what, what, what is man that you're mindful of him? And Lord, we confess that we, like Adam and Eve, we, we go our own way. We, we become our own God. We become our own standard of truth. We call the shots in a lot of ways. And Lord, we confess that we understand that leads to death. God, we want you to lead us and guide us. We surrender our hearts. And I encourage you today, if you're here and you've never completely surrendered your life to Jesus, that he is here, that he loves you, his presence is here, and it's as simple as just being honest with him. And so in your own heart, right where you're at, you can even say, you know, just begin to, Talk to him and, Lord, I, I've been calling my own shots. I've been God of my own life. And I repent because I'm broken, I'm a sinner, and I desperately need you. And I turn to you today. Now, that's not a magical whammy that's going to make you all better and completely well. It's going to give you a new life. It's going to make you a new creation. But guess what? It's set up because he wants you to get up tomorrow and say, and today I need you, Jesus. And the next day, and today I need you, Jesus, because he wants relationship with you. And he won't force you to love him. We have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. 
And another passage that says, but God laid on him our punishment. The punishment that we deserve, God put on his son. Something had to die to cover our sins, and that something was Jesus. He died so that we could be free. Receive him today. Walk with him today. Lord, forgive us for living our own lives. We love you, we honor you, and we thank you that we are a part of your story. In Jesus' name, amen. God.